invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. It can be found on page 1177 of your pew Bible, 1177, 1 Timothy. Today we are beginning a new series studying the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. They are called pastorals because they were written by Paul to two men who, although they might not have had the official title of pastor, were in fact functioning as pastors. And this makes the letters rather unique, doesn't it? Almost all the other letters of Paul are written to churches, to the whole congregation. But these letters were written by the apostle to individual men called to ministry. Now, as we will see in our study, Paul expected that the letters would be seen by the whole congregation. They were written very officially. If nothing else, the letters would have authorized Timothy and Titus to keep Paul's work going. However, though they were meant to be seen by all, they remain very personal and instructive. The purpose of these pastoral letters has been clearly seen by the Church of Jesus Christ from the beginning. In fact, in 1870 AD, so just 80 years after the last apostle died, the Muratorian canon ancient Christian document described the pastorals this way. To Titus 1 and to Timothy 2, written out of goodwill and love, and are held sacred to the glory of the universal church for the ordering of church discipline, end quote. So these are not books reserved for elders and pastors, but are for the whole life of the church. In fact, The book of 1 Timothy makes this point explicitly. Paul tells Timothy why he is writing this letter. In the great purpose statement of 1 Timothy, Paul writes these words. This is 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that, here's the purpose statement, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. What's at stake here then is not just the finer points of pastoral practice, but rather the life of the church. Literally, says Paul, how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now you may be saying to yourself, this sounds like a great study, but why are we taking it up? right now as a congregation. You may wonder, isn't there more urgent matters for us to consider and discuss? How about a series on human sexuality or the culture war on Christians or the horror of war in the Ukraine? All of these, of course, are worthy topics, timely topics. But I think this one is just as urgent. The evangelical Bible-believing church in the United States is in a crisis. You may not feel that here in our little sanctuary, but it's happening. And it is influencing and hurting the people around us. Record numbers of young people are leaving the church 
and record numbers as never seen before of pastors are resigning or being fired by their congregations. Meanwhile, the church has been rocked by multiple scandals. You have the scandal surrounding Rave Zacharias, which has been devastating to so many who have enjoyed his ministry. Even more disturbing, though, has been systemic abusive practices of other influential ministries and ministers. In the very popular podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, the abusive practices of Mark Driscoll and the shipwreck of one of America's most influential churches is narrated for all to hear. And then tragically, there is Pastor James McDonald, one of the most influential voices in American evangelicalism until he was charged recently with trying to hire hitmen to execute at least one individual he didn't like. He later reached a $1.8 million settlement with his church, and that settlement alone was a disgrace to Christians nationwide. COVID and the Trump presidency only deepened these problems. Some churches and individuals very unwisely lionized Trump, not just as a good political candidate, but as a uniquely blessed Christian. We don't do politics here, so please do not imagine that I am advocating for or against a political party or candidate. I am here only speaking of notable people in the evangelical world, thankfully not in our church, but those who put President Trump forward as a Christian leader, a Christian example. This was a disgrace. In a similar way, some churches took it upon themselves to deny the existence of COVID and even to promote semi-magical healing methods. The mainstream media reported with barely controllable glee the death of several notable evangelical ministers who up until their hospitalization denied the real existence of a pandemic. This only added to the scandal and the national sense that so many have today that the Bible-believing church is a fringe political organization. Now, those things did not happen here at Grace. I don't know anyone here who thought or taught those things, but this is happening and is part of why this study is so urgent. We'll see in the coming weeks that the pastorals utterly refute this model of ministry. Paul will present a picture of the pastor and elder as a man of constant prayer and quiet reserve. He is not an influencer, rocking the latest fashions, but rather the pastor is a guardian profoundly concerned with his own personal obedience to Christ in every area of his life. The ideal pastor of the pastorals is one not so much concerned with influencing others as with wholehearted personal obedience and faithful doctrinal teaching. His calling is put forward with intimidating simplicity in 1 Timothy 4.16, where Paul commands Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, because by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, many of the problems I just mentioned are admittedly out there. 
By God's grace alone, these scandals have passed over grace PCA. We've been shielded by a very forgiving Father in heaven. But finally, there is one reality in our local church that has also moved me to study these letters. As I look out, either from the pulpit or from daily prayer, I'm more and more aware of the change that is slowly but surely coming for our church. So many of the key people and families of this church are passing the milestone of 60. If you're paying attention, there is a growing question forming quietly in our church. What will the next generation do? And this was, you see, the very question that pounded in Paul's mind as he, at the end of his life, turned his ministry over to his spiritual sons, Timothy and Titus. And Paul's answer, Paul's answer to this question was un-American to the core, culturally un-American at least. For he said this to his sons, guard the tradition, guard the tradition that has been given to you Hold your ground. With that longer than normal introduction, not to be repeated, I promise. Please stand. Let's read God's word. Only two verses this morning. 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy... My true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is God's word. Let's now pray and ask his blessing on it. Father, this morning, we hope to hold fast, to hold fast to the traditions, the deposit, the trustworthy sayings that have been given to us through your apostles. Give us strength to do that, to remain faithful to you in all things, not by our own strength, but, Father, by your Holy Spirit. We pray now, bless us and help us, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. At first glance, the opening verses of 1 Timothy may seem unremarkable, rather conventional, and it's true, it is true, that Paul follows here the ancient sort of stock formula for starting a letter. Letters from this period often began in just this way. You name yourself, the sender, you name the recipient, who you are writing to, and then you add a blessing or a greeting. So I might write you and say, Matthew Fisher to Grace Presbyterian Church, Blessings or greetings. So the basic structure of this opening is traditional, what someone would expect back then. However, however, as Paul does in his other letters, there is a lot more. Paul often uses his introductions to give hints to the letter's agenda and its message. So, for example, the Paul's letter to the Philippians In the very beginning of that letter, he describes himself in the opening verses as the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then he goes on just a few lines later to call them to serve one another, having emptied themselves as Christ did of all pride and self-obsession. In the letter to the Galatians, a letter in which he is going to push them hard about their false theology, Paul begins by identifying himself as an apostle directly chosen by God and not by man. And the same is true in Romans. Paul alters, Paul alters his signature, his opening, to fit the letter, to augment what he is about to say. We see those same kinds of hints here in our opening verses. Already, right at the start, Paul is setting the stage for all that he has to say. As one author puts it, Paul here in these opening verses is aiming his letter as if to say, here's what it's all going to be about. So notice with me the three elements that make up this opening and the rich theology we can discover even in Paul's brief opening. We see first how Paul identifies himself. Second, how he identifies Timothy. And lastly, how Paul pours out upon Timothy an apostolic benediction. And not just on Timothy, but really I'd say the whole church. So first of all, notice with me how he identifies himself, who the letter is from. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now that is a very formal beginning, isn't it? Remember these two men, Paul and Timothy, are very close, like father and son. Timothy looks to Paul as his spiritual father. They've traveled widely together for years, for more than a decade probably. So why is Paul beginning a letter to someone he loves and knows so well with such a formal statement of his authority? What does this statement really mean? Surely Timothy does not need to be reminded or convinced that Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus. What we're going to see in our study is that though this letter was written to a dear friend, a spiritual son, it is not just personal. It's not just personal. And it is certainly not casual. Paul is not just reminding Timothy to bring a casserole next Sunday. Rather, it's a very official letter, isn't it? And it was clearly meant to be read to others. It would have been something that Timothy shared with the church at Ephesus where he was pastoring. It authorizes his ministry. It confirms his ordination. It would have been also a great encouragement to him as he dealt with false teaching in the church. And so Paul wants to set out at the beginning the unique authority that he possessed to direct and establish the church of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean? What does Paul, why does Paul call himself an apostle? The word simply means someone who is sent. But in the New Testament, it came to mean or represent a group of men who were personally called into ministry by Jesus himself and were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. The book of Acts, you might recall, opens with 11 disciples, Judas is now dead, so the 11 disciples choosing a 12th man to take the place of Judas. 
they recognize in that chapter that that man must be someone who has seen the risen Christ. And so this is what Acts 1, chapter 1, verse 26 says. They cast lots for them, that who they were going to choose, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered, listen, he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Paul, of course, the apostle Paul was the 13th apostle, and quite a surprise. You probably know the history, how Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and called Paul into ministry. Later on in a later letter to the Galatians, Paul will explain that his call, as we heard read this morning, did not emerge from Peter or John. Paul didn't get his call from Peter and John. He respected their authority, but he was not ordained by them. He did go to them at one point and they recognized his call, but he was directly commissioned. His ordination came from Jesus Christ. And so you heard these words earlier, Galatians 1, 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Paul can say to the Corinthians in another place, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And are you not my workmanship in the Lord? The office of apostle is unique and non-repeatable. The apostles and their writings are the foundation on which Jesus builds his church. Paul said it himself in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Even those New Testament books that are not written directly by an apostle, like the Gospel of Mark, are written by men under their care, under their authority, their spiritual sons. So Mark was the spiritual son of the apostle Peter. The New Testament then is written entirely under apostolic authority. Paul makes this so clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. There he describes the church of Jesus this way. He says, it was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And in numerous other passages, he defends and lays out his unique apostleship. Here's the point. Paul is starting the letter this way, such a formal beginning, because Timothy needs to be reminded that he is Paul's representative and that the authority of Jesus is behind his mission. Paul, you see, Paul is Jesus's apostle, directly sent by Jesus to found the Gentile church. And Timothy is Paul's apostle, a man ordained to continue that foundational work. Therefore, as we'll see in coming weeks, Timothy is to be bold. He is to hold fast the true and apostolic doctrine. He must face down those in the church who are teaching heresy, and he needs to know that he has apostolic authority to do that. 
When Jesus conducted his earthly ministry, the scriptures tell us that people marveled at his teaching. Even when he was a boy, they marveled. They marveled at the authority with which he spoke. And that is still true today. People all over the world are reading the Bible, even right now at this very moment, and it speaks with such authority. That is why we support ministries. A few of us even work for ministries whose whole goal is to get Bibles into people's hands. The Bible has an unusual authority, an apostolic authority, because it's the word of Christ. The apostles received that authority directly from Christ and with it the power of Jesus' miracles as well. Because of this, the Bible, their teaching, in the words of our confession, is the only rule of faith and practice. Look, we here at our church, we love the church fathers. Uh, we love the reformers. We love the Puritans. But none of those men are apostles. None of them is authorized by the risen Christ ordained directly by him to found the church of Jesus Christ. What it means to be reformed, what it means to be reformed, to be a reformed church, the Reformation is a movement constantly seeking fuller conformity to and alignment with the apostolic teachings of the Bible. The Reformation was and is a movement that says back to the sources back to the words and writings of the apostles. And those sources are alone the authorized writings of the New and Old Testament. Paul had seen the risen Jesus more than once. He he knew that with that privilege came the certainty of torture and martyrdom, both of which he experienced. But he was not afraid. From the start, he said, that Christianity and Ephesus and everywhere else must be apostolic. And he'll say that throughout this letter. There is an authority in our life and worship, and it is Christ's authority through the apostles as handed down to us in your Bible. And so on many Sunday evenings, we recite the Apostles' Creed, and we say together, I believe in one holy apostolic church. So that is who it is from. It is from Paul, But not just Paul the man, but Paul in his Christ-ordained role as apostle. That is the from part. From Paul the apostle by the command of God. Now second, notice who the letter is written to. And this is just as significant, I think. Paul writes, 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. You could translate that from the Greek, to Timothy, my authentic son, my true heir, my legitimate son in the faith. This is a powerful statement in which Paul immediately identifies Timothy as the true successor to his ministry. Lystra was a city in Galatia, which was a region in Asia Minor, we call it today Turkey, and you know the letter of Galatians was written to the churches that were in that area of Galatia. One of those churches was in a town called Lystra. Paul came there on his first missionary journey, and through his ministry there, a Jewish woman and her mother came to faith. We'll talk more about these extraordinary women later. 
This Jewish mother had a son named Timothy. And through the ministry of his mother and his grandmother, Timothy came to faith. But Timothy's biological father, a Greek, we don't know his name, never came, as far as we know, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, some time passes, and Paul is coming back through Lystra on his second missionary journey. He passes through, and the church is telling him about an extraordinary young man in the church, a man who loves the Lord and has gifts for ministry. And so Paul, on a second missionary trip, takes Timothy, and really from that point on, Paul and Timothy work side by side throughout Paul's many journeys. It's a wonderful uh, ministry relationship, and that is probably the focus of Paul's words here, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that Paul became like a father to Timothy. Some of you have this experience. It's not that you don't love your biological dad, you do, But when you came to Christ and your dad didn't, maybe your parents didn't, there's such a a disconnect there. And quite often, God sends a man or a woman into your life who becomes your spiritual parent. And it's a wonderful thing. And that was the relationship of Paul and Timothy. In fact, did you know that Timothy is cited as the co-author of many of Paul's epistles? We don't notice this often. For one example, the letter of Colossians begins this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, and Timothy, our brother. By the way, did you hear that distinction? Paul says to the church, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and I'm writing with our brother, Timothy. Do you see? Paul understood himself to be an apostle And he did not view that as something he could just hand down to Timothy, no matter how much he loved him. Timothy is pastor. Timothy is brother. Timothy is a faithful witness, but not an apostle. However, Timothy played a huge role in the writing of Paul's letters and in Paul's ministry as a whole. Well, without getting into all the details this morning, let me give you just a snapshot of Timothy's ministry It seems, it seems from the book of Acts and other writings we have, that Paul often used Timothy in what we would call the role of a pastor. And what do I mean by that? Paul would enter a city and Jesus would establish a local church there through Paul's miracles and through his teaching. But at some point, inevitably, Paul would need to move on or he would be chased out of town quite often. For example, Paul enters Berea. You'll remember that scene. He has a really successful ministry for a few days there among the Jews, and then he's chased out of town rather quickly. Paul's response then and at other times was to send Timothy or Titus back to that place to make sure things stayed on track. These churches had local elders, men in the church, men who lived there, who are raised up by the congregation, ordained as elders to oversee the life of the church. However, Timothy and Titus seem to function as elders, but with a special calling as also as pastor to teach and preach continuously wherever they went and wherever they were sent. This arrangement makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? After all, Paul couldn't stay anywhere very long because his calling as apostle was to be foundational. In his short lifespan, Jesus had called Paul to establish the whole Gentile church. 
Paul started the discipleship work. He was authorized by Christ to lay the foundation, but he needed faithful men to build on that foundation. And Timothy and Titus were those men. We can see them again and again in the book of Acts, carrying Paul's letters to churches, remaining behind to teach extensively in the churches and serving Paul in various ways. In these particular letters that we're going to be looking at, the pastorals, especially in 1 Timothy, Paul has sent Timothy back to Ephesus, this major city, this vital city, probably a large church. He sent him to this critical city, big city, to teach, to preach, and to stand for the truth. Paul had spent three years in Ephesus building the church in the city. Ephesus was the main Roman city in Asia Minor, what we call today Turkey. When Paul left Ephesus in Acts 20, he gathered the elders of the Ephesians church and he warned them that false teaching would come into the body and that they were to shepherd or literally bishop the people of God in the face of this threat. Unfortunately, that false teaching was running through the church. In light of this, Paul sends a messenger. And for Timothy's encouragement, and to put everyone in their place in Ephesus, Paul reminds the elders, this is my genuine son. This is my genuine son. The language is that used for someone who is a true son, a true heir versus someone who's a fraud or a child born out of wedlock. Paul is saying right at the start, Timothy is the heir to my miracle working, gospel establishing work in Ephesus. He is my true son in the faith. Just as Paul became an apostle, verse one, by the command of the father and son, so he now presents to the church and says, listen to my son. Here is how Paul describes Timothy in Philippians chapter 2. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. It's no surprise, is it? It's no surprise that Paul's last letter, maybe his last written words, are found in 2 Timothy. At the very end of his life, facing martyrdom under Nero, Paul picks up his pen and writes his spiritual son. Paul knows, Paul knows that the days of the apostles the days of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, those days were coming to an end. What will the future look like? Paul knows that it will be faithful sons, true sons, who will carry on his work. And ever since then, ever since then, the pastors of the church have known that Timothy is their model. We do not have the foundational authority of the apostle. We are not Paul and Peter, but we are sent by the apostles to preach their words, to establish their authoritative witness to Jesus. But here's the problem. Not all pastors are true sons, are they? That's the implication, isn't it? 
of what Paul is saying here? Paul says, here is my authentic son, Timothy. Why did he need to say that? Because there were false teachers even then. Take a moment to let that sink in. Even then, even at the beginning, the very beginning, when we as a church had men like Peter and Paul doing miracles and teaching the gospel, even then, false teaching was rampant. Satan was desperately trying to control the message, corrupt the message. If he couldn't kill the apostles, he would come in behind them and disrupt and corrupt the churches. Listen to this warning, this dramatic warning, brothers and sisters. This is given by Paul to the elders of this church shortly before he sent Timothy to them. Here's what he says. I know, Paul says to them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And then later on to Timothy in chapter 4, Paul prophesies again and says this, Now the Spirit expressly says, the Spirit says to Paul, that in the last times, those are the times we're living in, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. From day one in the Garden of Eden, day one, Garden of Eden, Satan has come into our world as a false pastor. He comes with enchanting words. He knows what we want to hear. He knew what Eve wanted to hear. He put doubt in her mind about God's love for her. He said to her, has God really said that? And ever since then, his lying spirit is everywhere around us. We have watched some of our number, some from this church, fall under his pastoral ministry. If I had to pick a title for this sermon series, I think I would choose just two words. Hold fast. Hold fast. The great calling, the great calling of the pastor and of the elder and of every Christian is not first and foremost to be an influencer, although we do want to influence the people around us for Christ, but that is not our primary calling. But before that can ever happen or have any meaning, the first calling is always this, hold fast to Christ. So written by the Apostle Paul in all his apostolic, foundational, and non-repeatable authority, a true son, a pastor sent to preach that foundational message and to be true to it. That's the from, the to, now we turn to the what. What are Paul's first words to his beloved son? And of course, he begins, as he always does, with an apostolic blessing. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And ever since then, every faithful minister of the gospel has used these words to bless his congregation, just as I welcomed and blessed you this morning. Grace is, as one author put it, 
a one-word summary for all that Christ has done for us. The marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Mercy, mercy here is a Hebrew word or idea. It is the word hesed, as in Naomi, hesed, Donaldson. Simply put, it is God's undying loyalty to his people in their distress, a help to those who cannot help themselves. And then lastly, as a faithful Jew, he uses the customary Jewish greeting, shalom. Shalom is not a feeling of peace. It is the forensic legal reality of peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Probably its greatest expression comes to us in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have shalom with God through our Lord, Joshua, the Messiah. Many people and movements, many people and movements will offer you these things in the course of your life. They will offer you grace, mercy, and ultimately peace. But the blessing here is an authorized blessing, isn't it? A real blessing, an authentic blessing. It comes down to us through our Lord Jesus and those appointed by him for faithful service. Some of you may recognize the name Doreen Virtue. Doreen was a hugely successful New Age writer and speaker. She authored numerous books and was very influential and well-known in New Age circles. Having achieved fame and fortune, she bought a 50-acre ranch in Hawaii with her husband. In 2015, Doreen was driving home when she stumbled across a sermon by a Celtic pastor named Alistair Begg. Pastor Begg was preaching from the pastoral epistles, these letters, 2 Timothy 4, and he was preaching against false teaching, against those who prey on people with itching ears. Doreen says, Doreen says that at that very moment, quote, I could tell he was describing people just like me. To the shock the horror and resentment, and there are some really colorful things out there online, so the shock and horror of thousands, Doreen repudiated all her books, had her name removed from tarot cards, and began to follow Jesus Christ. How did it happen? Well, just a man, just a pastor, but he was preaching the apostolic word of Jesus Christ, and that was enough. We need stories like that. Yes, Satan is active. His false blessing is everywhere. Illegitimate sons abound in our day. Scandals slam through the church. But Jesus will not allow his work to fail. There is still an authentic blessing for those who hold fast. So, dear brethren, hold fast. Guard the deposit. And as you do that, hard and dangerous work that it is, know with Timothy that the blessing of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit will be with you now and always. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we know that in these days, many lying spirits have gone into the world. Many who even call themselves Christian, men and women who wear the garbs of ministers and crosses around their necks, go on to television, go out into their communities, and they lie endlessly about the glory of Jesus Christ, and they blaspheme his name. The world is full of lies. Bring us to the truth through your precious word, through the apostolic witness to Jesus Christ, and help us to hold fast. Help our children to hold fast in the days to come. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.